Good afternoon. It's Brent Holland. This afternoon, Abraham Bolden joins us, the first African-American on White House Secret Service detail, handpicked by President John F. Kennedy himself. And I think that the whole thing was that the U.S. government, after the president was assassinated, wanted to assure the American people that Oswald was the lone assassin. So in order to sell that bill of goods to the American people, they came out with the cover-up, and they covered up everything that would probably, you know, point into another direction. I should tell folks, Mr. Bolden was not on protective duty. He was not there. He was in Chicago, as he just said. Sir, had you have been there... Would you have taken that fatal shot for Mr. Kennedy? I sure would have, because not only that was my duty. That was my duty to do that under the Constitution of the United States. The Echo from Daily Plaza, the true story of the first African-American on the White House Secret Service detail and his quest for justice after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Abraham Bolden, this afternoon on Brent Holland. I just got back from Dallas, Texas at the JFK convention there. Well, tell us about it. How did it go? Oh, it went very well, very well. We had some of the uh, notable authors that were there and uh, who gave uh, dissertation and speeches on uh, many of their books that they wrote. What was the most impressive one for you, sir? Lamar Walton and his legacy of secrecy. He gave a very, very extensive uh, overview of some of the things that he discovered concerning the assassination of our president. Do you remember one in specific, sir? Perhaps an example? Well, this uh, criminal connection here in Chicago, the uh, connection between Giancano and his solicitation by the government to uh, take part in the assassination of Castro in Cuba, he went into that quite extensive and I think that he brought a lot of uh, clarifying material with him. The audience, as a matter of fact, greeted him very handsomely for his exposition concerning that and how that uh, many of these uh, men who were uh, criminals and who were high in the mob echelon actually were working for the CIA. Well, you were involved in that investigation in Chicago just before Kennedy came there. Did a lot of that ring true for you also? Yes, from what I heard, of course, I didn't know at that uh, particular time that Giancana had been solicited, but we did 
uh, have a lot of activity in Chicago concerning uh, Cubans who uh, had made certain threats against the president and seem to have had foreknowledge of his assassination. How about if we go into the Chicago thing right away, sir? I was going to leave that kind of towards the middle, but that's fine. I mean, we're on the subject now. Can you talk about, this would be just after you left the White House detail and you were back in Chicago now. Can you talk about the investigation and the threat that was put against President Kennedy? It was two weeks before his Dallas trip, if I remember correctly. Yes, yes, that's right. As a matter of fact, there were a couple of investigations that were going on a couple of weeks before his death, assassination in Dallas, Texas. Uh, one of them involved a Cuban named Echever, who, to a Secret Service informant, had said that the president was about to be assassinated. Now, this happened in the last week of October. So the Secret Service had an agent next to Echever, who verified that these words were in fact spoken. He said that uh, the president was going to be assassinated because that he was withholding his support from the exiled Cubans in Miami, Florida. Now, we had already had foreknowledge also of an assassination plan against the president that emanated in uh, Miami during a telephone conversation between a couple of suspects. Now, when the president was supposed to come to Chicago on November the 1st, we got a call at the Secret Service office from the FBI who said that they had an informant, a lady, who had seen uh, rifles and uh, the route that President Kennedy was supposed to take when he arrived in Chicago going to Soldier Field for the Army Navy football game. And the Secret Service here in Chicago talked with the uh, person, the in informant, and set up a surveillance on these men who were alleged to have been two Cubans who were being visited by European gentlemen. But that investigation fell through. As for the Escherer uh, investigation, now what happened on that, that investigation was turned over to the FBI after the president was assassinated, and we didn't hear anything else from that Escherer investigation anymore. We were told to tear up all of the notes that we had concerning that Escherer investigation. And as far as we were concerned, the Escherer investigation did not exist. Now, since they took such great pains in covering up this Escherer thing, I'm sort of of the opinion that the Escherer investigation and the investigation of the Cubans who had the rifles in the rooming house, I, I think that that's one and the same investigation and that Escherer was indeed mixed up with these people, although the Secret Service never brought that out, and the Warren Commission was never advised of those facts, to my knowledge. There's some puzzling questions there for sure, sir, and I agree with your speculation. I think it was covered up, as so many other investigations surrounding this tragic day were covered up. Can you speculate a little bit further as to perhaps your own views of why it was covered up? Well, I think that it involved the CIA echelon, members of the CIA so in-depth, and the FBI, and also the terrible investigations that the Secret Service had done in reference to the suspected assassins, that, that it would have not only have been embarrassing, but it would have, have looked to the American people as, as if that uh, these things were planned by these organizations. It's no question about it that the uh, FBI and the Secret Service were involved in the Echeverria investigation. 
And I think that the whole thing was that the U.S. government, after the president was assassinated, wanted to assure the American people that Oswald was the lone assassin. So in order to sell that bill of goods to the American people, they came out with the cover-up, and they covered up everything that would probably, you know, point into another direction. They did that in, in hopes that the American people would buy that thing that they were selling called the truth, but that was absolutely falsehood. Unbelievable. Why do you think it was so important for the CIA to sell this lone nut assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, after the assassination? What was it they were trying to cover up? Their own embarrassment? For yes, being- their own ineptitude and, and just like the Secret Service. that yes, they, they had not given these investigations the importance that they deserved. And there were several reasons for that, I believe. I think that Many of your high echelon people in the CIA and the FBI and the Secret Service were not very well enthused with what the president was doing. He was talking about eliminating some of the CIA and changing its format and different things. And and I think that actually it was a good thing for them that the President Kennedy uh, was dead because that uh, many of them uh, relaxed after that because they felt that they would have a better opportunity to put their careers. Sir, you talk about being ostracized. Have you been in contact with these fellow agents that you just spoke about since then? And have you been able to come to any terms with them? I have talked with a couple of agents, some who are within the Secret Service now and some who were in the Secret Service when I was there. And to a man, they all understand uh, what happened to me and why it had to happen because a couple of those agents are out of the Chicago office here and they know exactly what I was saying, although they declined my invitation to come out front, you know, and verify these things that I'm saying because prior to the release of many of the documents that were declared top secret by uh, President Lyndon Johnson, these people know that uh, I'm telling the truth. And they could verify much of what I was saying. Prior to the release of those documents, people were trying to make me look like I was insane. But the release of the documents, yes. After the documents were released, I was talking about an investigation uh, that occurred in Chicago where people knew that the president was going to be assassinated. And people were saying, this guy is insane. No such investigation uh, existed. And then the federal government, the Congress investigated, and then certain documents were released and verified everything that I said. And so I have to keep on keeping on because there's a greater thing that's at at stake than just the death of one man or the death of me or the death of President Kennedy or, or anybody in my family. And that is the larger picture of the protection of the freedom, justice, and equality that we have under the Constitution of the United States. Have any of those agents ever come to you and expressed any remorse for what happened to you? Yes. Yes. I talked with one agent. Well, shortly after I was released from the penitentiary, and uh, he testified against me at at the trial. And he just came to me and said, point blank, that, uh, well, I had to do what I did because they put so much pressure on me. And I told him, I forgive you, man. I, I understand how those things go down. You, you know, because when the, so what the Secret Service did to me and imminently uh, and finally uh, made a better man out of me, if you would only uh, understand that, they made a better man out of me. What I went through alerted me 
And it brought me closer and closer to the reality of what would happen if we lose these freedoms that we have under the Constitution of the United States. It made me uh, more uh, willing to fight to preserve these freedoms from any and all enemies of America. You see, sir, this is what makes you a great man, because you've taken that negative, horrible things happen to you, and you've turned into something positive. Instead of getting down on yourself and letting that fester away at you, you've risen up beyond that. Now, I do want to talk about what happened to you, but one last question about these agents that won't come forward even to this day. They displayed some remorse, but they don't have the courage in themselves yet to come forward. What is so explosive that they're still trying to cover? Is it their own ineptitude, or is there something more festering there? Well, one thing that's festering, uh, some of those agents, I, I know absolutely about two of them, is they stood by and let reports that they had submitted prior to the president's assassination, their menace reports that they submitted to the supervisor and special agent in charge of the United States Secret Service. They stood by and let those reports be re redictated by the supervisor of the Secret Service in the Chicago office, Mr. Maurice G. Martineau. Then those reports were redictated as to have happened after that the president was assassinated. See, that, that's a very serious thing because they not only stood by and watched a felony committed, which is submitting a false report to a government agency, but they became a part of it. Now for them to come forth and to give that information, they have to also give information that incriminates them because they became a part of a conspiracy to hoodwink the American people. Folks, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with the one, the only Abraham Bolden, and I say that with all conviction. This man is an incredible human being. His book, The Echo from Daily Plaza, can be got at any Chapters Indigo right across Canada. Just to let you know, Mr. Bolden, Chapters Indigo is our version of Barnes Noble. And, yes, and it can be gotten, folks, as I said, any Chapters Indigo right across the country. If you go to to the www.brentholandshow.com website. Right on the front page, you'll see a picture of the book cover. Just click on that. That'll take you to chapters online. You can order it. Probably be there within the next 24 or 48 hours top. It's an explosive book. I've read it six times. As I say, this is an incredible story that is crying out to be told. It's a story of bravery. It's a story of fortitude. It's everything that human beings should strive to be, and Mr. Bolden encompasses all those wonderful, wonderful qualities. Sir, I was wondering if we could talk now about the horrible things that took place right after the assassination. But just to preface that, where were you November 22nd, 1963, when you heard the news about Mr. Kennedy? I was giving a nightclub owner here in Chicago at 37th and Indiana. He had a tavern down there where he served liquor, and I was inside taking some handwriting samples from him because somebody had passed a forged government document to him in the payment for drinks. And so normally we have to take a handwriting sample from whoever had handled that particular negotiable instrument to exclude them as being the party that forged the name of the payee. And so I was standing there, and it was about a quarter to 12. And we were taking the handwriting samples, and, and suddenly there was an announcement. I remember it was on Channel 2, what we called CBS here in Chicago, that the president had just been shot. 
Now, at that particular time, no announcement was made that he was dead, but, but he had been shot. But I knew right away that under those circumstances, the president probably would have been killed because I, I uh, thought that his protection would not react, and they didn't. The prophecy came true. Indeed, That's right. it was proven also that most of the agents had been up all night drinking. Some That's of them right. not even Absolutely. gone to bed. And Absolutely. And when I made that charge shortly after President Kennedy was assassinated, and I made the charge that those agents were up that night. See, I didn't know for a fact, but I knew that by habit, that's what they did. You, you, you see. Mm, I understand. And so I, I knew them. I, I knew them. And so, and so as it turned out, I told um, the chief of the Secret Service, U.E. Bauman, that they would not react. And if you look at the picture, when that bullet struck the president in, in the head, they're still standing on the, on the running board. Not one of President Kennedy's guards went to protect him. Now, Kit Hill was assigned to the First Lady, Jacqueline Kennedy, and he was very alert. Clint Hill and I were good friends, and I, I always did think that Clint Hill was a very efficient agent, but I knew that those st agents standing on the running board would be in no condition to react, and they were not. And they were not. I would imagine... You may have run those scenes over and over in your head, perhaps putting you on that car that day. I should tell folks, Mr. Bolden was not on protective duty. He was not there. He was in Chicago, as he just said. Sir, had you have been there, would you have taken that fatal shot for Mr. Kennedy? I sure would have, because not only that was my duty. That was my duty to do that under the Constitution of the United States. And nobody forced me to go into the United States Secret Service. It's the same as a soldier in uniform. They take many, many bullets from people all around the world. We have young men, 17, 18, 19 years old, being brought back in flag-shaped coffins. Now, we have to, the American people who are here and who are in this country, have to have that same idea of sacrifice for the country that those soldiers have. Even though that we have on the Kuppenheimer suits and all the different type of hats and things, we still are in a fight. And that fight is to protect the Constitution of these United States of America with our lives, if need be. And President Kennedy, having been the chief executive of that Constitution, deserved all of the loyalty that a soldier would give for his country. Sir, let's talk about the Warren Commission now. Did they ever contact you at all? How did that the come Commission, about? They, they never did. The Warren Commission never contacted me. They, I was only contacted by an official body of the United States government after I was released from prison. I believe it was in 1979 when the Congress took up their investigation of the assassination of the president. I know you made an effort to contact the Warren Commission yourself, sir. I was wondering if we could talk about that and what led to your arrest just after that. Yes. Well, I had told a couple of agents that... Uh, the first time that I chance I got to go, go to Washington, D.C., that I wanted the Warren Commission while setting at that particular time. They were hearing testimony. But according to what I was reading in, in the newspapers, they weren't uh, hearing anything concerning the investigations that we had investigated of live and growing programs and conspiracy to assassinate the president. I didn't hear some of the names 
that I knew had been associated with such conspiracies. So I wanted to go into Washington, D.C. and contact J. Lee Rankin, who was the counsel for the Warren Commission. So I had an opportunity when I went to Washington, D.C. on, on May the 17th, 1964, to a Secret Service school. I was there actually to go to school. But the night that I arrived there, I tried to contact J. Lee Rankin through the White House switchboard. Now, there was an agent with me, Agent Gary McLeod, and he walked into the telephone booth next to mine. And since I never heard the the money drop, you know, it used to make a ding. It was the old type telephone. You could hear ding-a-ling when, That's right, sir. when mm -hmm. the phone dropped. I didn't hear that, so I knew that he was listening to what I was trying to do. And as a matter of fact, I had to bought that call and try to set up some other means to try to contact Jamie Rankin, who was the counsel. Now, immediately the next day before noon, the Secret Service went to my hotel room in the Willard Hotel. They packed up all of my clothes. I didn't know anything about this then. They, they were going through my room. They packed up everything, threw it in my suitcase and everything. In the meantime, Mr. Howard Anderson, who was the personnel director, he came over to the Secret Service School that was being held in the Treasury Building and said that I was needed in Chicago, back in Chicago, because they had seized the counterfeiting ring in uh, Villa Park here in Illinois, which is a little suburb of Chicago. I flew back with an Inspector McCann and, and McLeod, who was an agent who was going to school with me. I was met by several agents at the O'Hare Field Airport, and they drove me into Chicago to the Secret Service office all the time saying that they had discovered this big counterfeiting plant that's in Villa Park, and they needed my expertise as an agent in order to uh, bring it to a close. And they took me to the United States Attorney's Office. And to be frank with you, they had me snookered. I mean, I thought this thing was really an investigation. I didn't know what they had in store for me. But I sat there for about six hours. They didn't let me eat anything, talk to anybody, for fear that they were telling me that one of the suspects might be in the building and recognize me and blah, blah, blah. They had a big pretext going. And uh, about uh, six hours later, Mr. Martineau, who was the supervisor here in Chicago, walked into the room and said, we're going to charge you with soliciting a bride. I almost, my jaw almost hit the floor. I said, what? Uh, you know that's ridiculous. And he looks me right in the eye with a little smile on his face. He says, you prove it. It's very difficult to prove a negative, especially when all of the records and things are in the hands of the person who is trying to send you away. It just You just can't Absolutely. do it. And he was behind it. Yeah, Mr. Martineau was behind the frame up. Now, whether or not he had all the watching in his seat to do it from James Rowley, who was then the chief of the United States Secret Service, I believe that he was acting on the chief's orders was to silence me, to quiet me any way possible. They had what they had when I came to Chicago. I finally realized that they arrested me that night on the 18th, locked me up on the word of two counterfeiters. These were men who had made a, made a career out of criminal activity. One of them, Joseph Spagnola, had Spagnola. been arrested yeah. some 50 times. And Frank Jones had been arrested by me. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was awaiting trial 
for a third conviction of which he would have gone into the penitentiary for the rest of his life. And these are the men that they put on me. I was supposed to have given one some document to give to the other one for $50,000. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And now I went through two trials. The strange thing happened in the first trial. The uh, federal district judge, the Honorable J. Sam Terry, called the jury out while they were deliberating as to uh, what the verdict should be after the evidence had been presented. The judge called the jury out and said, in my opinion, the defendant is guilty of counts one, two, and three of the indictment. And he tells the jury, Father, he says, now go in and deliberate on the instructions that I just gave you. In other words, he wants them to deliberate on me being guilty above any other thing. Our Constitution is it's against that. The jury is supposed to make that decision, and when the judge did that, he, in fact, became a juror because he had voted and asked them to vote with him. Well, they didn't. They ended up in a hung jury, and I went to trial for a second time about a week and a half later. The judge scheduled a second trial. Now, during this trial, the judge, knowing what happened during the first trial, about 5.30 that evening on August the 12th, that's 1964, it's when I went on trial on 64 CR 324. Yes, sir. Uh, when the jury was deliberating, what he did was put me, my attorney, and all the spectators out of the building. He locked us out of the building, had the guard to put the chains on the doors, and the whole building was empty. The only people who were in there was the jury, the Secret Service agents, FBI agents, CIA representatives, and the jury and the judge. The judge had said he was going home for the day and he was going to shut down the court. But on the way home, I heard that the jury had just reached a verdict, and I knew that I had to be guilty under the circumstances. So and he sentenced me on September the 4th of 1964 to a term of six years in the custody of the federal prison. I was wondering, when did Spagnoli come forward and tell everybody that he was indeed perjuring himself, yes, that on, he was lying? Yes, on, on January 20th, uh, 1965. I had turned 30 on January the 19th. I really needed a miracle. My wife and I doing a little birthday party that we had here. We were just talking about the case. I really needed something to happen, you know, because I knew that they were out really to send me away to the penitentiary and do some other things. And lo and behold, uh, my attorney called me on the 20th of January 1965 and said that Spagnoli had just admitted perjury in your trial. I couldn't believe it. What possessed this man to come out like this? So of course, that helped me quite a bit. We got a copy of the record of Bagnoli's admission that he had committed perjury, and he further said that he had committed this perjury at the instigation of the United States Attorney. He named the United States Attorney, Richard Sykes, and not only did he name him, he had a piece of paper that this attorney had given him to remember his testimony, what he is to testify to. Sir, was there any criminal action taken against those gentlemen? No, no, no. not any not whatsoever. Not any, not, not even an admonishment, not even uh, uh, an indictment, nothing happened. When my attorney appealed the case before the Seventh Circuit of Court of Appeals in Chicago, the chief judge of the Circuit Court of Appeals called this attorney, Richard Sykes, 
before the bar and questioning me. He wanted to know, did he solicit perjured testimony in my trial? You know, the United States attorney took the fifth amendment. He says, if I answer that question, I cannot answer it because it tends to incriminate me. And do you know they still affirmed the conviction and sent me away to prison for six years? And there was no recourse at all. So I'm just wondering... Did the Attorney General's Office of the United States, I know Bobby was an Attorney General at that point. Did no, they Catherine, try to back. Yeah. Did he try to intervene on your behalf at all? No. Nothing? No, he, no, he didn't. He didn't. Nobody tried to intervene in my, my behalf. And, and when I had written letters to about everybody that I knew, yes, sir. Who, who should, I wrote Adam Clayton Powell, I wrote many of the senators, Senator Long from Missouri, mm-hmm. uh, who was in the Judiciary Committee at that particular time. I, I wrote those people trying to get someone interested to stop this disregard of the court procedures that I had just went through, because I knew that once the government got me in custody, they were not only going to imprison me, but they were going to take some very dreadful acts against me in order to assure that I not be available to say anything. Like, Let's uh, talk like, about some of those dreadful acts, sir. Well, what the uh, government does, and usually they try to put you in a position where the American people won't believe anything that you say. That affects your credibility in a negative way. They could not kill me outright because there was just too much information, too much pressure on the case. It was uh, widely publicized. So the second best thing that the government does, second avenue that they take is to declare a person insane. Mm -hmm. And so that was what I knew that I had to guard against because once they hang that tag on you, then you're not believable. They said that anything, if I were talking to you right now and had once been declared insane, nobody would believe anything that I say. This is the, where they wanted me, and, and they proceeded to try to do just that when I went to Springfield, Missouri. After I was there assigned to the camp for about a year, I had an argument with one of the patients there who was a psychotic patient. He was being treated there for being in, insane. And I had an argument with them, which they blamed me for the argument, saying that uh, I had been an ex-Secret Service agent and and this guy drew a butcher knife on me and I should have been able to take that butcher knife from him oh. without any problem. Yeah, and, and, and so, they, so they put me in the psychiatric ward and, and forced me to take psychotropic drugs. How did you manage to keep your spirits up, sir, and your sanity surrounding those times? During those particular times, well, the first thing that I had to do was keep those psychotropic drugs out of my system. So I had to devise a way that I could take those drugs and remove them from my system. And I did that, and I explained it elaborate in the book. That there was a, a certain procedure that I did in order to make sure that these drugs did not take a hold on me because I knew that the government, if they want to destroy your mind, they start out with a mild sedative and they get stronger and stronger right. and stronger the longer that you're there until they put you in a condition that you don't know where you are or what, what it's all about. Then you're in their custody for the rest of your life. What happened is that after I had devised this plan, I, I had won about 50%. They still wanted to continue 
on and try to declare me insane. And I, I think that they were somewhat puzzled on why those drugs were not taking an effect on me. So while I was in that psychiatric uh, ward, which they threw me in, see, they can throw you in there for 30 days in order to evaluate you. That, that's the way that they put it. But they're not supposed to give you any medication except ordered by the court. But they violated that rule when it came to me. Hmm. So they scheduled me for insanity hearing as the chief of classification of parole, put me on the list for a sanity hearing, which was to take place on about August the 7th of, uh, that was uh, 1967. He was going to be the one who was going to sign the paper that I was insane. Now, it just so happens that a certain thing happened to him where he could not be there when I appeared before the board, and they sent me right back to the camp because he himself committed suicide. That's the person who was saying that he was going to declare me and saying he himself committed suicide the day before that I was supposed to appear before the committee. Do you feel that may have anything to do with your case, sir? I think that what happened was this, Brent, is that, see, there's a higher law than the law of man. There's also a law of God. I'm a firm believer in that. I believe that they had uh, violated the law of man so thoroughly and, and so fully that as an automatic reaction, the law of God began to kick in. And they say, he, you're going far enough with him. And God stepped in and delivered me from the hands of those people who were about to uh, declare me insane. It was impossible for them to go on with any procedure without the the chief classification and parole there. Now, they could have continued the procedure if any other members had been absent or not there or died or whatever, but not the chief of the classification and parole. He was the one who had to sign the document verifying that I had indeed been found insane and was, they were going to change my number to a psychiatric number and hold me for the rest of my life. I knew that's what they had at stake. But I had a lot of faith, which I, as a young man, I was very religious and I'm very religious now. I think that there was an interference, there was a retributive act of grace from God, and that's what saved me. And it's wonderful to hear that your faith carried through those tumultuous times and gave you the courage to go forward. Folks, if you're just joining us, you are probably riveted to your seat as I am. It's very emotional when I when I interview Mr. Bolden uh, for me, because... Um, He is very authentic. He's the real deal, folks. And uh, it's just extremely emotional for me. The Echo from Daily Plaza, the true story of the first African-American on the White House Secret Service detail. This is a man, folks, if you have children, this is the man that you want your children to use as a role model. I know it's important to have sports role models, but this man has the fortitude and the courage that is so needed, so needed in our world today. The book can be gotten at any chapters Indigo right across the country. If you go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website, www.brenthollandshow.com show. Just click on the book cover there. That'll take you right to Chapters Indigo. You can order it online. You'll probably get it 24, 48 hours. When you were down in the pit, sir, 
I know there were several things that took place, an act of intervention, a fire specifically. Yes. I was wondering if you could tell the folks about that. Yes. Well, I was in Tuwan East. All of the inmates at Springfield, Missouri, that's a medical center in Springfield, Missouri, they call it, they have a name for this place, and they call it the tomb. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where I was in that 2-1 East Psychiatric Division. And uh, they for the uh, worst of criminals, people who have killed, murdered, and have done all sorts of treacherous things, most of them are incurably insane or haven't been made by the government as being uh, incurably insane. There's a lot of screaming at night, a lot of hollering and cursing that are going back there. And it's, it's just a madhouse. So they call it the tomb. And when they put me there, I was there. Uh, my 10th day there, I remember just as clearly as I can. It was uh, about the uh, 16th of July. I had this vision. There was a vision where I believe it was a holy angel from God. It couldn't have been anybody but a holy angel from God. And I do believe in the angels of God. But uh, he or she came to me in my room in a vision of light and told me not to worry that uh, I would be free from that stern cell that they had me in and had me locked up for 10 days. They had me in there without any clothes. I didn't have any clothes or shoes or shoe or anything like that and they hadn't let me bathe or come out of that room for 10 whole days. I couldn't turn the lights on or off. They did that from the outside. They flushed the toilet from the outside. And so uh, uh, there I was. And when I saw this vision, it, it told me not to fear and that God had heard me, that, that God was with me. And the very next morning, the very next morning, there wasn't even uh, eight hours between the vision and, and daylight, I heard the fire bells ringing in the ward, and they, they were ringing loud, and the guards were running back and forth past my room. I knew that something was going on because I could smell the smoke. And I heard one guard holler to another one that there was a fire in one of the cells down near the end of the hall. This guard who was still on his way there said, can't be, said, we don't have anybody in there. It's been vacant. And he says, well, the room is burning. Everything in there was, was burning. The mattress and everything was a fire. And they couldn't figure out how that could be with nobody in there. It made it necessary for them to come to my cell. And for the first time in those 10 days, the guard turned that key, and I walked out from behind that three-inch thick steel door into like it was almost like uh, making parole. Even though I was just walking into another lobby area of that ward, it was being outside was just like freedom, man. I tell you, nobody can tell you and really explain to you how it feels to be alone with nothing but your thoughts and the lights being turned out at 7 o'clock. Nobody talks to you except those who want to give you some medication. Or the psychiatrist come by and talk to you through the door and the guards push your blankets and things in through a little, little uh, a slot in the door. It just was horrible. It, it was horrible, Brother Holland, and, and I wonder sometimes how I endured it. After I came out of that situation, as a matter of fact, uh, when they let me out that 10 days because of that fire, you know, they had to let me out. I sat across from uh, one inmate that I had seen, witnessed myself. He stabbed another inmate on the elevator that I was on, stabbed him to death, cut his guts out. 
And I witnessed this, and here I am. They put this inmate, but his first name was James. I won't say his last name, but this guy come over and sat down, and we had a conversation about that day that he killed another inmate. <sighs> and uh, <laughs> you can imagine how I felt at first when I recognized this guy, and <laughs> I was in there with him, you know, because I was on my guard, and the silverware that we were eating with, yeah, I wasn't afraid that he could do anything with that because most of it was plastic or cardboard but we had a conversation and and i tell you i wouldn't take anything for that experience so it, it, it was a great experience for me it, it was a learning experience too and i came out of it for the best of mankind i believe i have something to contribute to mankind you certainly do sir what an incredible man you are it is truly an honor to speak with you today folks if you're joining us mr abraham bolden first african-american secret service agent Handpicked by John F. Kennedy himself. The Echo from Daily Plaza is the name of the book. Can be gotten right across the country at any chapter's indigo. But I always loved law enforcement. I was enthused with it because we had a couple of men in the neighborhood. One of them was a guy they called uh, Leo Fats Gooden. And uh, he was a deputy sheriff. And uh, and a real nice guy. Big, uh, big fat guy. He weighed about 450 pounds. Holy cow. And, you know, but everybody loved Leo. And then we had Lucius Hogan. Now, these people stayed about a block away from me, and they were like sort of the neighborhood mentors when children would get in trouble. Sometimes the parents would go get one of them and have mm-hmm. you talk to this boy. You know, they, they were like the, the policemen. Very well respected, and, and I admired them so much, and they impressed I really wanted to be in, be in law enforcement, and that's the choice I made. And, uh, of course, a job came through at Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Mm. And you were the first African-American at the Pinkerton outfit also, weren't you? Yes, isn't isn't that something you know now? Now, I didn't didn't know that. I had no idea, and my wife happened to see this Pinkerton job in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper one Sunday. She was reading it, and at that time, I was considering uh, going down to uh, southeast Missouri. She says, well, here's a policeman job that you... You were talking about you might apply for a police job, said that Pinkerton is looking for the detective agents. And I told her, you know, I said Pinkerton's got a reputation. They don't they don't hire no Negro agents. You know, she says, well, you never know. She says, take this uh, clipping out of there. And she cut the clipping out and she says, why don't you go over there in the morning and, uh, and apply for the job? And I said, oh, okay, but I tell you now, they're not going to hire me, you know. And so I put this clipping up in my lapel pocket of, of my Sears and Roebuck suit. I had, uh, had a nice Sears and Roebuck suit. Uh-huh. It cost me thirty nine ninety five with two pair of pants, man, and I was sharp too. I went absolutely. Uh, yeah, I went up to Pinkerton National Detective Agent on the twelfth floor at seven o five Olive Street in St. Louis, Missouri. I walked in the office and I told a young lady who was sitting there uh, typing. I said, I came to feel a, a Pinkerton investigator job that you have open. And she looked at me and she says, we don't have anything open. I said, yes, you do. And I, I gave her this clip and then uh, my wife had cut out with the paper and it said clearly that they were looking for investigators. She looked at me and said, we're not hiring people like you. Well, back there in those days, I knew exactly what she meant. She didn't have to elaborate, mm. and I wasn't going to give her any trouble. You know, and this was in 1956. I wasn't going to give her any trouble. Yes, sir. And uh, as I was turned around, getting ready to walk out of the office, this uh, tall, sandy-haired European walked out, 
and he asked the secretary, said, uh, what's the problem? And she said that uh, he came looking for a job, and I told her, we don't have anything open. He looked at her and says, yes, we do. And he said, he told her, said, give him an application and have him fill it out and then come talk to me. And so I filled out the application. I found out that this was the uh, district director of Pinkerton. Wow. And uh, he was there, and, and I filled out the application. He looked it over, and he said, he asked me about my music career and everything, mm-hmm. and I told him what had happened. And uh, he says, well, we'll give you a background check. That'll take about two weeks. And they called me up and told me to report to Pinkerton, and I went over there, and he says, well, Mr. Bowling, he says, I'm going to give you a chance. Do the best you can, because we don't have any Negro investigators in Pinkerton. And he says, by you being the first one, I'd be expecting uh, a lot from you now. And I said, I won't let you down, Mr. Mertz. He gave me the job, gave me my badge and my star and everything, and I became a Pinkerton detective. Man, was I happy. <laughs> I couldn't wait to go tell Leo Gooden and, and Lucius about it. I showed them my little silver badge and everything that they gave me. I felt real good about that. At that particular time, being the first African-American wasn't very significant to, to me. You know, I didn't go over there and say, I'm the first black man and all this kind of stuff. I, I mean, I... I I realized that it was a milestone, but I'm more proud of it now than I was then. Let's right? talk about Year Salinger's, you sir. Oh, isn't that something? Yeah, that's uh, I was standing in uh, front of the president's office on detail. Yes, on sir. Post in Washington D.C. and uh, they were coming out of uh, the president and the cabinet were coming out of a meeting that they had had, and I happened to be standing right outside the president's door, and when. Hubert Humphrey and Senator Barry Goldwater came out through the president's office door, and they left it open. I reached in to close the door, and President Kennedy was standing in the office, and he was talking to his brother, Robert Kennedy. He looked up and saw me, and he came rushing over with his hands extended, and he said, Mr. Bowman, I see you made it here. And I I was startled. You you know, he, he mm-hmm. remembered my name and, and, and here he comes and he's smiling from the other ear and everything and he called he went Humphrey over there and told him, I want you to meet Mr. Bowen. He's a Secret Service agent, the first uh, Negro and this and that and he said the same thing to Barry Goldwater. Then he took me to Evelyn Lincoln, introduced me to Evelyn Evelyn Lincoln. And, and also Andy, who was the assistant press secretary. And here comes Pierre Solinger. And uh, he says, Pierre, uh, come over here. I want to introduce you to somebody. And Pierre came over and he says, I want you to meet Abraham Bolden. So he's the Jackie Robinson of the Secret Service. And I tell you, I almost burst into tears to be equated with an icon like Jackie Robinson. I mean, I, I felt so, so good. I, I felt like the president was really telegraphing, telegraphing to mean the fact that I would have to endure like Jackie Robinson did, that he realized that uh, what I was coming into and being a pioneer, that everything was not going to be, you, you know, pie and, and, and sweetness, you know. He realized that. And so I think by equating me with Jackie Robinson, I think that was the message that he was really uh, relaying to me rather than Pierre Salinger so much. Sir, Mm -hmm. you have achieved that and so much more. Let's stay on some happy times. Your first time on Air Force One. Oh, 
one before, and I'm sure that the President Kennedy was the person that put me there because we were leaving the Hannesport on July the 5th after they celebrated the 4th of July down there. It was about the 5th of July. This same supervisor who had told me that I was nothing but a, a nigger, mm. he told me that I was assigned to the uh, President's Air Force One. Now, I knew that he would never put, not 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 Harvey, he would never put me on Air Force One uh, unless it was on inside of one of the jets, you know. But, uh, <laughs> I'm laughing and I shouldn't be, I apologize. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, no, really, really, he would put me under one of the wheels, maybe, but but not inside, you know. But it, anyway, uh, I'm sitting on Air Force One, man. I'm really looking at, at how it's laid out, all of the uh, equipment it has on it, and the president came out out of his cabin, and as I was sitting there near the front of the plane, and he nodded to me, you know, and I nodded back at him. I said, man, this this is really something, you know, being historical like this. And plus, I rode on a helicopter to get on Air Force One. I was about, I I would say, let's see, uh, oh, maybe six inches from the president. He was sitting, and our knees were almost touching, and I was sitting right across from him. I was looking right in his eyes, and he was looking, you know, around and, and everything. You know, Brent, at one time I, I started to uh, mention to him some of the problems that, that I had had, but I decided, I said, you know, that would really be out of the way because here's, here's a man, he's got Vietnam on his mind, he's got all of these problems of Russia and Khrushchev for them. Now I come mm. up and say, somebody call me black. You, you know, I mean, high insignificant. I, I felt that it would be best to handle that through the Secret Service, through the normal chain of command, and in hoping that they would take some type of action, but they didn't. Did you ever talk about family issues or anything? Perhaps uh, your wife and your kids. Did he ask about those Are types you of issues? On the Secret Service detail? Yeah, with President Kennedy. Did you have any personal conversations with him at all, sir? Mm-hmm. I tell you, I talked to uh, Caroline, and <laughs> she was a little young girl. And oh, I want to get into Kennedy. that. Uh-huh. Yeah, Jacqueline Kennedy came out, and she had on a bathing suit, and she had a towel draped around her shoulder, and, and uh, little Caroline uh, uh, was with her. She had Caroline's out of hand, and I was sitting at a table that had an umbrella open and two chairs, which was one of the uh, Secret Service posts near the beach. And she walked up to me and she says, uh, Mr. Bowling, would you watch uh, Caroline while I take a swim? I said, oh, sure, Mr. Kennedy. And she went off, you know, went on down by the water. And look, Caroline kept looking at me and she kept looking at me. And finally, finally, she says, uh, what's your name? <laughs> and I told, I told Abraham, you know, and she said, Abraham. I said, yeah, like Abraham Lincoln. And she said, oh, and then she, uh, with a little little sand uh, cup she had, she was putting sand in it with a little spoon. And she stopped and she sat at the table across from me, you know, and she was looking inquisitive and everything. She says, do you have a daughter? I said, yes, I do. And I said, her name's Avia. She says, can I play with her? I said, sure you can. I said, but she's in Chicago. And uh, you, you're here, she says. I, I can go to Chicago. You know, so sweet. She was such a sweet little girl. And then uh, Jacqueline came back. And I heard her ask Jacqueline as they were walking back up towards the, towards the main house saying, Mommy, can we go to Chicago? Aww. I thought that was so cute. That was so cute. We, she and her little pink 
uh, fan suit on. That's I don't beautiful. know if she remembers that. Yeah, oh, oh, I, I was very happy about that. And I wrote a letter to my wife and told her that uh, Carolyn Kennedy wanted to play with Avi. They, they're about the same age, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, I just, <laughs> so it was just, it was just wonderful. The Kennedys treated me, you know, so royally. I talked to Bobby Kennedy uh, while I was there in Hannesport, and he wanted to know why I didn't uh, uh, make the application for the FBI. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told him, you, you know, that uh, I didn't think I was qualified because I was not either a lawyer nor an accountant. And he says, oh, those type of things can be waived, you know. Yes, sir. And, uh, yeah, he told me to uh, look into it when I got back to Chicago. But in the meantime, the president, during the conversation, and asked me if I intended to make a career out of the Secret Service. And I told him that uh, not really. I really wanted to uh, be a diplomat or something uh, like that to one of the uh, African nations. And he asked me if I spoke uh, any of the African dialects. I told him no. He says, well, I tell you what, Mr. Bolden. He says, uh, you go to Burley's uh, language school there in Chicago. He said, I think they got one in Chicago or just outside of Chicago. Learn to speak one of those languages. Uh, and uh, who knows, he says, before I leave office, uh, I might help you fulfill that dream. And I told him, thank you, Mr. President. And I'm telling you, he, I mean, he was serious about this. You know, and so was I. So was I. Incredible. Do you still have the aspiration, sir, to become indeed a diplomat? Well, I can't now because of the uh, felony conviction. What I would like to, uh, what I would like to see happen is that uh, the current president, the Honorable uh, President Barack Obama, yes, sir. is that somehow or another that Holder investigates this case, that it, because there, were, there is much evidence of my innocence in the Secret Service files. I know that would have to be, because I never committed any of the crime. I would hope that they would declare that uh, my conviction was unlawful, reinstate me to the Secret Service, and then let me resign. See, now that's the way I would I like see. to see it go. But the chances of that happening, I, I think, are slim to none about, it, about as much as uh, me meeting the president at McCormick's place. <laughs> so, so, so there is that slight possibility, see, because a, a pardon mm-hmm. is, is one thing, but they want you to say that you committed a crime and that you're asking the president to pardon you, uh, something like that. No, well, I might accept it, but I would never say that I did something that I didn't do. Good for you, sir. That courage of a great man. Sir, where is the case right now? Is there anybody, folks, that are listening right now can write to? Yes, they can uh, write to me at www.echo from Dealey Plaza, D-E-A-L-E-Y, Plaza, P-L-A-V-A dot net. Okay, that'll they be great. They can go to my web. Yes, it will be. Sir, I have a slight confession I have to make to you. After go our... Right ahead. After our interview last year, I was so touched by your courage. I contacted Carolyn Kennedy and Ted Kennedy via email and sent them a copy of our interview together. Now, Is that right? I, yes, sir. I never mm-hmm. heard anything back from them. I, and I know they received it because somebody had a sign for it. And I had called them and explained uh, there was a wonderful little story, the one you just told about Carolyn, that I wanted yeah. her to hear. 
I was just wondering, has anybody ever contacted you from either one of those offices? I know Senator Kennedy's dead now, but I was just no, wondering. No, huh. and that's the strange thing. I yes, sir. Had teachers, there was a group of teachers from Texas. They wrote the president and asked that uh, something be done in my case. I know that people from Chicago have sent books to the president and mm -hmm. to Carolyn Kennedy and to Rory Kennedy, as a matter of fact, and, mm -hmm. and but but we never get a reply, and that's really odd because yes. when I was writing President Clinton, at least the people were getting something back that we're looking into it, and uh, you you know these times, you know, a form letter even we're not even getting a form letter back, no acknowledgement whatsoever. That's exactly and what that's happened. And that's weird. It is. Any and, speculation as to why, sir? Well, I keep, you know, hope alive with the idea that, that let's say that they replied and said that we're looking into it. Well, that's a story in itself. If they said that we're not looking into it, and that's a story on the negative, which they would look for me to care before the, the, the public. You understand? Yes, sir. So anything that they answer is going to generate a lot of publicity. So I think really it's good for me that they're not abruptly telling people, sending them a letter saying that this case went through uh, procedures and through the Supreme Court and there's nothing more that we can do. I'd rather they not answer and investigate something secretly mm -hmm. and come to some conclusion than to give me that final answer that nothing can be done. I see, sir. How about in terms of a feature film being made about your life story? I know I've been in contact with a very famous filmmaker. His name is Mark Sobel. He's done a film called The Commission, which is on the Warren Commission. And we've been writing each other back and forth. I had suggested to him about doing a feature film. And um, I was just wondering if there's any developments there, sir. Yes, we have a, a few developments that, that are coming uh, along. Uh, the Excellent. first thing that we're having done at the present time now is having the uh, script writer to prepare a script. And he already has at least three actors out there in Hollywood that he's going to uh, I'll present the script too. We're on that, and he's, I guess he's about finished. He's been working on it for a couple of months now, and we'll go from there. In the meantime, I have had some feelers from some other production managers and uh, movie people. As a matter of fact, at the JFK convention that I just came from, there were a couple of producers there who said that they would be contacting me and see about getting this into a screenplay. Fantastic. And it's about time. Sir, if you ever need music, no problem there, my friend. I'd be more than happy to and honored to write a score for you, sir. Yes, yes. Sir, I guess we're going to have to start to wrap up now. Is there anything, sir, that you would like to leave the people with? Well, what I would like to leave the people with is this. When trouble occurs, when such things happen, like the assassination of presidents or leaders, heads of state, Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, yes. whoever it is, we have to stand up and be alert. We who want to stand for democracy, we that want to stand for equality and justice, we can't just stand up when things just affect us alone. We have to stand up wherever we find corruption in a democratic process. And that's our obligation to American people. It's our obligation to our children. And it's our obligation to God to be the best people that we can be while we're on this planet Earth.
That's beautiful, sir. I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight, sir, on our show. And I just want to wish you God bless and all the very best thank always. You. Thank you for having me very much. Thank you. Good day. Bye, sir. What an incredible, incredible man. The book, The Echo from Daily Plaza, the author, of course, Abraham Bolden, first African-American, handpicked by JFK himself to be on his own personal Secret Service detail. The book can be gotten at Chapters Indigo right across the country, or just go online to the BrentHollandShow.com website. Next week, author Rodney Stark joins us to talk about his explosive new book, God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades. Talk about revisionist history. Wow. Next week on Brent Holland. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Yeah.